welcome to this week's episode of Pod's Own Country, the politics podcast from the Yorkshire Post. I am Caitlin Doherty, your Westminster correspondent. In this week's episode, reporter Nathan Hyde spoke to the new boss of Transport for the North, Martin Tugwell. They discussed the need for investment in Northern Transport and projects including HS2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail, which MPs and businesses have both said are essential for the prosperity of the region. They also chatted about the long-awaited but currently delayed integrated rail plan and the impact it's having on those all-important projects. You can hear that interview in full in a moment, but before you do, the big news of this week has undeniably been the unfolding crisis in Afghanistan. Following the West's withdrawal of troops, the Taliban have swept through the country, taking over Kabul at the weekend. There have been heartbreaking images from across the area as people tried to flee, chasing departing planes and at some points clinging on to the outside in increasingly desperate attempts to escape. Unusually for the summer, MPs were called back to Parliament on Wednesday to discuss the issue following widespread condemnation of the government's response from across the House, including from former Prime Minister Theresa May. There were moving speeches from a lot of members, including Afghanistan veteran Barnsley Central's Dan Jarvis. He spoke of his Afghan brothers-in-arms who fought alongside him and saying that he dreads to think what has happened to those men now, suggesting that many will be dead or consider themselves dead men walking. Any honourable members, I'm sure, I'm wracked with a profound sadness at the catastrophe that we've seen unfolding in Afghanistan. Above all, it is an unspeakable tragedy for the people of that country who after generations of conflict now live under a terrible cloud of fear and repression. Who could fail to be moved by the agonising scenes from Kabul airport just this week? How desperate must you have to be to want to cling onto the side of a moving aircraft? These past 20 years have been a struggle for peace. We tried to break the cycle of war, to give hope to women and girls. We tried to give the Afghans a different life, one of hope and one of opportunity. But the catastrophic failure of international political leadership and the brutality of the Taliban has snatched all of that away from them. The new administration in Kabul should know that they will be judged not by their words, but by their actions. The world is watching. Now, Mr Speaker, I also want to reflect on the service and the sacrifice of our brave servicemen and women who throughout showed outstanding professionalism and courage. As the Honourable Member from Plymouth Moorview said just a moment ago, recent developments have hit them hard. They're grappling with the question about whether all of the effort, the sacrifice, was really worth it. They're again grieving for fallen comrades who didn't come home. But whatever the outcome is in Afghanistan, those men and women and their families should be proud of their service, and we must be proud of them. Now, many of us who served in Afghanistan have a deep bond of affection for the Afghan people, and I had the honour of serving alongside them in Helmand. We trained together, fought together, and in some cases we died together. They were our brothers in arms. But I shudder to think 
where those men are now. Many will be dead. Others, I know, now consider themselves to be dead men walking. Where were we in their hour of need? We were nowhere. Mm. And that is shameful. shameful. And it will have a very long-lasting impact on Britain's reputation right around the world. I will give way to David Dennis. My honourable friend, fellow litigator, is, uh, is uh, absolutely right in his description of the, of the Afghan armed forces. Will he add to his comments uh, now that, that many of them are more heroic and better soldiers than they're given credit for around mm. the world? I'd be grateful to the right honourable gentleman, uh, as I always am. I completely agree with the point he made. It was particularly distasteful and dishonouring of President Biden to make reference to the lack of courage and commitment by those Afghan soldiers who've served with such bravery and distinction. I think we have to be pragmatic, and I think at this difficult point we have to think about what our next move is going to be. And we should understand that the character of our country is defined for better or for worse by moments like this. We should also understand that we are facing a moral and humanitarian crisis of enormous proportions. And the response from the international community and from the British government needs to meet the magnitude of the moment. So, step up the statecraft, engage with international allies and alliances and with regional partners. And although it is a particularly bitter pill to have to swallow, we must engage diplomatically with the new regime in Kabul. It is in our cold-headed national interest to do so, because right now our armed forces are deployed on an operation to recover UK nationals and other entitled personnel. It's in their interests that we engage to try and ensure the safe passage of those wanting to leave. But we also know that many, many more will want to get out, and with our allies we need to work to establish safe routes to get them to safety. We must show compassion and genuine generosity to refugees whilst accelerating and expanding the Arab scheme to support those who supported us. We also need to defend the hard-won progress over the past 20 years or so. Girls in school, women in parliament and, and in the judiciary. We must ensure that Afghanistan does not slide back to where it was pre-9-11. And then, when the dust settles, we need to look at what went wrong and learn the lessons of this failure. Why, despite all of the effort, we couldn't build an Afghan state free from corruption with the legitimacy and competence to balance the competing forces within that country. And what that now means for our foreign and defence policy in this country. Regardless of all of that, we must remain engaged. We must show leadership. We must use whatever influence we have to try and make things better. That's in our own national interest. It's in line with our values, and it's the right thing to do. We owe that to the people of Afghanistan, and we owe that to ourselves. A resettlement scheme has been announced to help those trying to escape come to the UK but a lot of people are saying it's just not enough to cope with the crisis. This story is sure to be one that will keep on rolling beyond the summer as MPs return for the new parliamentary term. But for now, 
it's pretty clear that many are unhappy with the current approach. Now for this week's big interview and I will speak to you next week. Thanks very much. Hello and welcome. My name is Nathan Hyde. I'm one of the reporters at the Yorkshire Post who's been helping out with the political coverage in recent weeks. And today I'm joined by Martin Tugwell, the Chief Executive of Transport of the North, who's just taken on the role. Martin, how are you today? I'm very good, Nathan. It's And it's great to actually be uh, here working for Transport for the North and part of a really fantastic team. And I notice, um, looking back at some of your previous roles, um, would you just be able to run through a little bit about your background uh, for us first and just tell us about some of the work you've done previously. Yeah, I qualified initially as an engineer, so um, I've got um, a lot of experience working in terms of designing bridges, roads and building them. And and thankfully, a few of the bridges that I've uh, designed have actually stayed up when they've been built, which is always a good sign. Um, But more generally, Nathan, what I've been doing is, is really focusing on how do you make the case for investment in transport to enable Um, economic growth uh, and sort of do it in a way that's sustainable and that's been something that's driven me throughout my career how can we make a difference to people to businesses to the communities that we live in and and I'm a great believer that um, one of the roles for regional bodies like transport for the north is to provide that leadership which is why um, I've spent the last 20 years or so working at a regional level working with partners building the case and then making that case to government for funding and for investment. So I noticed some of the previous roles that you've had <clears throat> include um, Deputy Director of Infrastructure Planning at Oxfordshire County Council, uh, Programme Director at England's Economic Heartland and President of the Chartered Institution of Highways and Transport. So yep. um, what attracted you to the role of Chief Executive for Transport for the North? I, th- I just think, Nathan, it's a fantastic opportunity. The the ambition and the leadership from the political leaders around the TFM board, but also from within the business community. There's a clear sense of ambition and passion about um, realising the potential for the North. Um, And that's a hugely attractive opportunity. Um, As I said earlier, I mean, one of my drivers is how do we get things done? I'm a great believer in taking strategies and helping make them um, deliver on the ground, because at the end of the day, that's what makes the difference, making a real difference for people's and, and businesses on a day-to-day basis. So in that context, the opportunity with Transport for the North was absolutely fantastic. And, and for me, uh, in the world of um, regional transport bodies, um, I have no question Transport for the North is, is, is in the Premier League, if you like, in terms of uh, a, as a body. Uh, and I wanted to be able to be part of that team and help make the case on behalf of the North. And as someone who's lived and worked in the south of England, um, <clears throat> does the state of the North's current transport infrastructure, does that sort of surprise you at all? Do you think it is sort of significantly lagging behind somewhere like the southeast, for example? Um, I think the unfortunate answer is it doesn't surprise me because clearly what you get is is the the the, the investment that you deliver. So when you look at the numbers, when you just look at the simple numbers, um, if we compare what's invested in the north with, uh, say, London, for example, then as an as a region, 
um, we get something like uh, London is getting three times the total amount of investment that the north. And if you think about somewhere like Yorkshire and Humberside or or maybe the northeast, that figure becomes um, seven, you know, seven times more investment for London compared with what we get in Yorkshire and Humber. And it's a reality that um, if you have the investment, you can make the difference. Uh, and so part of the challenge here is to use the evidence that we've got in Transport for North, use the single voice that comes from our political leadership working with the business leadership to make that case. Don't underestimate the importance of having to make that argument and to make it on a on a regular basis and, and almost become part of the accepted wisdom, if you like, that you need to invest here. And the other thing, Nathan, is we know that if you do make the investment in the North, you will get a fantastic return and you'll get a fantastic return quickly. So it's an attractive offer and we've just got to have the, the right message and the right language. And we need to harness that voice that comes from the TFN board members to get that message into Whitehall and get the investment that we need for the North. And I realise, obviously, you're fairly new to the role, still settling in, but from what you've seen so far, what do you think uh, Northern passengers need the most? What do you think should be prioritised? Well, I think there's a number of things there, Nathan. First of all, um, anybody who uses a transport system on a daily basis, and I'm not just talking about rail or, or bus, I think just the transport system as a whole, you're, you're wanting to be certain that when you set out in the morning for whatever journey it is, whether it's to get to work or whether it's for school or for um, your own personal, you want to have certainty that the, the transport system is going to be there and it's going to deliver. And you also want to have certainty that the, the value for money for the transport system is going to be right as well, because too often transport can be a barrier for people. So having value for money, having availability of, of transport is really important. So that's one of the key things. There's another thing there about having confidence. So um, we've talked already about the, the opportunity, the economic opportunity for the North, but to attract that investment, to get the, the people who are gonna say yes to invest either in new housing or new businesses, they need to have confidence that the investment in transport and other infrastructure is going to be there when they need it, because otherwise, why would they invest? So it's very much around confidence as well. And thirdly, and again, we're starting to see this already, is having the capacity for um, the transport system. So it's great to see how um, in the north, for example, rail passengers are starting to come back in quite some numbers and probably ahead of the curve uh, nationally. But what that does is it highlights the, the pressure on our existing infrastructure. And if we think about some of the conditions we saw on, let's say, the Northern uh, Rail Services in pre-pandemic, the overcrowding, the lack of capacity, those are really quite um, unacceptable moving forward. And if we think about people's expectations about having a comfortable, uh, safe journey moving forward. We've got to address that issue about capacity. So I think that we can get those three things lined up, the certainty, the confidence and the capacity. Then I think we can go to some way to making it more attractive for people to not just work and, 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 and enjoy the North, but actually to invest in the North for the longer term. Um one of the things that I think um, a lot of passengers are waiting to see whether it makes a difference is obviously the government recently overhauled the rail, uh, the rail system in this country, um, set up Great British Railways. Um, you know, they're going to change the way that tickets are sold, the way that the railways are managed, um, <clears throat> obviously getting rid of the old franchising system that 
really didn't seem to be working for passengers or the companies that were operating these services. Um, do you think this is going to benefit passengers? Do you, are you optimistic about this? I am, Nathan, and I'll tell you why I'm optimistic. There's a number of reasons. First of all, I think the changes that are coming uh, are a recognition that um, the old model we had, where we had one company looking after the infrastructure and other companies looking after the running of services, it wasn't delivering. We were getting aspirations and ambitions for new services, but we weren't getting the investment in infrastructure to match up with it. So we were getting a disconnect. And, and you know, we saw the, the disruption that can cause and the, and the uncertainty that it gives to, to passengers. So I think the fact that we're going to see these things brought together really does give us an opportunity. Um, again, what excites me about the North is through the Rail North Partnership, through the Rail North Committee, we've already got structures where our political leaders are able to work with the rail industry to map out what it is we need for the future. And I think that gives us a head start. So when um, the government is looking at how to implement some of these proposals that have been set out in the white paper for rail reform, I want us to be in a position to say, look, based on our experience, here's how we can do things quickly. So don't let's wait for two or three years whilst the legislation goes through Parliament. Let's see what we can do now. And, and if we need to shape and influence that national debate best based upon our experience, then let's do that. We've got the opportunity to be really quite bold here. So I am optimistic. Um, don't let's be under any estimate, uh, under any illusion, though. We're still going to need to make the case for more investment. So going back to the point I made earlier, the capacity in the rail network, we need that um, that in uh, that focus, if you like, around investment in the rail network. And again, I think back, um, it's what, nearly 200 years since the Stockton and Darlington Railway kicked off the railway revolution. And I'd like to think that we're at the cusp of a new railway revolution as part of that green economy that we talk about and aspire to. I think that's an interesting point you make because I think it was back in 2019, it's, it's hard to remember sort of pre-COVID times, it feels like a lot longer, but when Transport for the North brought in the bosses of TransPennine Express and Northern because, you know, passengers were just sick to the back teeth of the service and there was a lot of kind of finger pointing saying, you know, we didn't get the infrastructure we were promised and we didn't get this and, you know, and like you said, bringing that harmony will hopefully bring, sort of, you know, centralising it a bit more, having kind of one organisation running a lot more will hopefully expedite the process and when improvements can be made, it will kind of bring it together. And I think I'm, I'm, in, I'm obviously catching up very quickly with all of our TFN board members, um, but I'm also making a point of reaching out to the, the managing directors of both TransPennine Express and Northern. And I'm saying, I have to say I'm really encouraged by their uh, their approach to the situation now. They want to be working with us. They want to be doing better for the passengers and for the economy of the North. So there's a there's an there's an optimism there. And I think one of the things that Transport for the North is really well placed to do is to use that mechanism of a single voice and bring together all the partners to sort of have that single voice, not just from the political leaders or the business leaders, but from the operators, from the owners of infrastructure. And likewise, my experience in the past uh, working with people like Network Rail, there's some fantastic um, engineers and some strategic thinkers in Network Rail. They want to work with us. They want to be part of that partnership. So the more that we work together, 
political leaders, business leaders, the infrastructure owners, the operators of service. And we have that very single focused message about what the future is. Not only can we generate that confidence amongst our residents and our businesses, but we've got a really strong message to send to Whitehall about why you should work with us, you should listen to us, you should use our advice to shape the investment. And actually, Nathan, trust us, give us the devolved budgets to work with, because our political leaders are used to making difficult choices. That's part of what comes as being a, a political leader. And I'm really convinced of how if you want to allow and realize the potential of those political leaders, empower them with the budgets to actually say, we're making the choices, we're looking at what we need for the North. So with the strategic transport plan, we created the plan for the North led by the leaders of the North. And now we need the mechanisms to deliver that plan for the benefit of our residents and our businesses. I suppose you have sort of already touched on this, but <clears throat> will be, it will probably be one of the main questions that many of our listeners and readers of the Yorkshire Post will be thinking is, you know, how there's so many promises that we're hearing all the time up here about levelling up, levelling up, you know, all these improvements and investments that are promised. But for someone like, you know, you and Transport for the North, how are you really going to ensure that the government actually delivers on these promises? How are you going to hold the government to, you know, make sure that we actually see these projects followed through and delivered? So there's a number of steps there, Nathan. First of all, you know, the creation of Transport for the North for the first time gave the North a voice in Westminster. Um, it's great to have the, the, the leadership of individual authorities, but when you come together in a single voice and you have that one message going into government, uh, that's even more powerful. But don't underestimate, it takes time to change the way that Westminster thinks and that's why some of the foundations that are being laid over the last few years have been really essential. What we've also got with Transport for the North is a credibility in terms of why we're saying what we're saying. We've got a fantastic team here at Transport for the North in terms of technical knowledge, modelling capability, the people that are going to put, to case, put together the business case that underpins our arguments to government. That takes time to assemble. But what we've got this autumn is we've got a spending review, which is an opportunity for us to work together, to pull together the evidence base and to lay it in front of government to say, this is the return you can get for your investment. And trust us, this isn't just a, a wish list. This is evidence based. We understand what the potential is for the region. We understand the opportunity that we've got. And investing in the transport system is going to be a key factor in realising that potential. And at the end of the day, if we can unlock that economic potential sooner, that's to the benefit not just of the North, but it's actually to the benefit of the UK economy as a whole. And one of the things that attracted me to the role uh, at Transport for the North, uh, Nathan, was seeing some of the, um, not just ambitions, but some of the practical changes that are happening, whether it's the, the free port proposals, whether it's the investment being led in hydrogen infrastructure, um, whether it's the investment in giga plans. These are all cutting edge, 21st century green economic revolution uh, ideas and they're happening here in the north so let's make sure we capitalize on that investment in transport is part of that mix so as i was mentioning one of the things we've heard from members time and again um the likes of dan jarvis the likes of andy burnham uh, they've been talking about this integrated rail plan which the government's promised for a long time 
due to be published last year. Um, we haven't got a, they haven't set a date for when it's going to be published. And the reason that's key for anyone who doesn't know is it's kind of it's supposed to set out how major projects like Northern Powerhouse Rail, HS2 um, across the North and the Midlands will be integrated. And it seems like those projects can't go any further. We can't progress with them until we see this plan. Um, for someone like you, I, I know Transport for the North have mentioned it previously. How frustrating is the delay and how are you guys working to sort of press the government to get it published as soon as possible? Well, you're right, Nathan, that it's important to have that clarity from the integrated rail plan sooner rather than later. Um, we're, we know that we won't see it before September, which um, is hopefully just a few weeks away. And, and if we see it at some point this autumn, I think that's going to be really helpful because we will start to see for the first time what it is that we're working with in terms of um, how we pull, as you say, not just the aspirations of Northern Powerhouse Rail, but how it links them with, with HS2 and, and particularly the HS2 Eastern section. Um, the sooner we get it, the sooner we can start moving on forward with it. Um, we'll have to obviously take a view about what it uh, what it says when it's published. Um, I think for me, though, there's two things there. One is then let's crack on with what we've got agreed from uh, through the, the integrated rail plan. It may well be that in the longer term, we want to be pushing for even more than what's included in the integrated rail plan. But I think we need to also focus on getting those bits that we all agree on delivered sooner rather than later, because frankly, the sooner we start delivering things, the sooner people will see benefits. And actually, the sooner we'll get some um, re return from our investment. And have you been given sort of any indication at all from the government about when it might be published? I, I think um, they're hoping to publish it uh, later this autumn, whether it's September or whether it's slightly later in the autumn. I think um, the sooner the better. Um, but we'll continue to work with government to make sure that if they need more information from us, we'll supply it. And then we'll work with the government to actually help deliver it once it's uh, once it's published. Like I said, Nathan, you know, it may well be it doesn't meet all our aspirations, in which case there will be a further role for Transport for the North to make that longer term ambition uh, and make that case. But let's don't don't let's lose the opportunity to bank some of that investment in the short term, because that gives us an opportunity to kind of build momentum. And I think some of this we talked a little bit earlier about how um, investment in the north has lagged behind the investment in, in the south. And I think part of that is about confidence. Part of it is about building momentum and really demonstrating that when we say you will get a good economic return, you actually do. Uh, and that creating that momentum and that confidence means that when we then um, look to make the case for even more investment, we've actually got a track record that says, you know what, when we say this, you can trust us. There's an evidence base. And by the way, we can actually deliver it. And a recent report um, from Transport for the North spoke about how uh, the delay for the integrated rail plan publication has unfortunately resulted in a delay <clears throat> for Northern Powerhouse Rail, which is a major project that's going to sort of improve rail infrastructure right across the north. It said um, that obviously that the business case for Northern Powerhouse Rail is now not expected to be submitted until March 2022 at the earliest, um, which is about a year later than originally planned, as you're still waiting. Um, is uh, again, is that something that uh, obviously it's out of your hands kind of thing is it just a case now of you guys are just focusing on doing as much as you can to the business case without seeing the ipr and then obviously once it's come trying to work quickly and effectively to to complete it 
it's both that and also making sure that where we can do some groundwork now, we crack on with it. So we know that we're going to have to um, do some survey work to understand what is it that we actually need to deliver. So let's just do it. You know, some of these investments, um, they kind of fall into the no brainer, um, no regrets kind of category, Nathan. So if we know we need to do some investment and we've got a fair idea about what uh, the scheme is going to look like, let's crack on with some of the survey work and some of the design work so that when we do get the, uh, the integrated rail plan published, we actually can start moving forward uh, based upon that sort of groundwork that we're doing. And I think that's an example of where, um, yes, you know, it, it might be frustrating that we haven't got the integrated rail plan, but there's still a lot that we can do to lay the foundations on which we can then move forward rapidly once we've got um, what we once we've got that clarity. And obviously, the the other big issue, I suppose, for a lot of people, or is this ongoing kind of uncertainty that. Uh, comes around the eastern leg of HS2, which is the leg of the track that is supposed to reach to Leeds. Um, you know, we've heard from the government before, um, for example, Grant Shapps said earlier this year that it will be built in full, it is going to reach. But there's obviously, you know, more rumours have circulated recently about the government's looking to scrap it because, you know, they don't think that the cost is kind of running away and they don't think it's worth the money and they might look to spend it on something else. And are you concerned about the future of the Eastern leg of HS2 or are you pretty confident that it is going to be built in full when the track is going to reach Leeds? I think we need to keep arguing and making the case as to why it's not a question of um, Northern Powerhouse Rail or HS2. We need both for the, for the North. And indeed, that's the whole case that we put forward, Nathan, that actually these are two projects that need to be brought together for the benefit of the North. And that's hopefully what we'll see in the integrated rail plan how government um sees that vision being delivered as well uh, and i mean don't let's be under any illusions we actually need some of hs2 uh, eastern lake to help enable and deliver some of those northern powerhouse rail services too so these are sort of linked projects um let's get the clarity around the integrated rail plan let's see those two projects being brought forward i think it's it's reassuring to hear um, messages from um, the government, from the Prime Minister downwards about their commitment. I think what we're looking for now is that integrated rail plan to, to put that kind of commitment into something tangible and then let's work together with the government to deliver it as quickly as possible. It's like you said before, isn't it? It's all about sort of confidence and I suppose once you know, you've got something in writing and a concrete plan in place, then you know that can sort of lead to further investment already and um, people can really build off something like that. Whereas at the moment, um, you know, like I, I think Tracy Brabin, the mayor of uh, West Yorkshire, tweeted the other day saying, kind of feel like they've been left in limbo a bit over the over HS2 and the uncertainty around it. Um, but yeah, like you said, hopefully this will be in writing soon and we'll be able to move and go from there. And, and for me, Nathan, it's the really it's this thing about understanding. We're not talking about investing in transport for the sake of transport. We're investing in transport to enable other things to happen. So, whether it's in the big cities that we've got, or whether it's in the in the communities between those the cities, if 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 investors, if if the house builders, if the commercial developers understand that the investment in infrastructure is coming, they can plan with more confidence. They will bring their investment to the north. That will bring opportunities for our residents to find their opportunities to. to and, and when we talk about levelling up, 
that's the what it actually means people having opportunities to realize their potential having opportunities to realize um, jobs when we've talked about the strategic transport plan um, and we've set out very clearly that if we deliver the ambition and the vision in that plan we'll unlock a hundred billion pounds of extra um, value in the economy um, as for the north we'll unlock 850,000 new jobs jobs for residents of the north so when we hear about leveling up it's about creating opportunities in the north for the north and not having to have to move out of the north to find those opportunities absolutely and another thing that i know has been spoken about previously um is uh transport for the north talking about um you know there's a need or there's definitely an appetite um, for more devolved powers and funding. Um, so, you know, decisions on northern infrastructure projects can be made in the north by, you know, the people who know the area best and know what um, the people of the north need. Is that something you got, you know, as someone who's just taken on the role here, is that something you're really going to look into and really look to push for is more more sort of power and a bit more autonomy? Again, uh, one of the things that attracted me to the role with Transport for the North was the ambition that underpins the Northern Transport Charter. So not only does the Charter talk about how we put the user at the heart of our transport system, how do we understand their needs? It talks about how we work and use the resources we've got within the individual authorities and within Transport for the North to not only identify what we need in terms of investment, investment but actually to bring it forward and deliver it. And the third element there for me is about this um, devolved funding. Um, I've worked in regional structures before and um, government sometimes gets frustrated that the regions um, have a long wish list. Well, the answer to that is, is give us a devolved budget. Um, our political leaders, they're used to making uh, difficult decisions. What they need is some sort of financial framework within which to work. And then we can make the best choice because... To any, any problem, there are always a variety of solutions. Um, but if you haven't got a sense of how much money you've got to invest, you don't know whether you need to be quite creative in your solution or whether you need to go for something a bit grander. And that lack of certainty or lack of clarity about how much money is available makes it difficult for people to take the difficult choices. I've got no doubt. I've seen um, the political members of, uh, of Transport for the North in action at board meetings. They are up for that leadership role. They are providing it as much as they possibly can. Let's see the next stage coming forward where they have the responsibility of uh, having some sense of funding and prioritizing that funding so that we get the choices being made in the North for the North. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, so for example, um, the West, West Yorkshire devolution deal, it seemed like it just took forever to secure that deal. And then obviously uh, Tracy Braben's taken on the role very recently. And then I think it was last month we heard that, you know, she'd managed to work with operators and the West Yorkshire Combined Authority to secure new tickets um, for young people, discounted tickets, tickets that you can travel, you know, for a certain period. So it was more sort of linked up and less fragmented. And it, you know, it just seems like it took so long to kind of get those devolved powers in place and get them off government. But once it is sort of changes that can benefit passengers happen fairly quickly and those decisions can be made. So, yeah. And, and I think that Nathan, this is where um, there's a, there's, we've, we've got the opportunity in the North to, to be quite creative. So we've got 
in the uh, in the larger metropolitan areas, we've got the directly elected mayors, the metro mayors, and they're providing leadership. And then Transport for the North is the body that brings them together so that we understand and make the connections between Liverpool and Manchester, between Manchester and Leeds, between Leeds and then the North East. Those connections are just as important and complementary to what the metro mayors are delivering in their own areas. And I've seen firsthand the commitment of those mayors, along with their partners, to work together through the north to bring together that big picture. I think it's a really powerful, almost double devolution, if you like, Nathan, where you get the strategic issues being looked at at the strategic level, transport for the north, and then you empower the local communities to deliver the local connections and that join up at a local level in the way that they're already starting to do. And lastly, what can you tell me about some of the other exciting projects that Transport for the North is currently working on? Because I know we've obviously spoken about things like uh, HS2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail, but what are some of the other things that are in the pipeline? I think there's some really exciting stuff, Nathan, and I think really at the sort of cutting edge of some of the the challenges that we're facing. So um, we've talked a little bit about how um, the passengers on the rail network are recovering. What's interesting is we're seeing a, um, a very definite switch. So more leisure use, more use of railways and public transport for, for non, uh, non-journey to work. Now, that creates an opportunity for us. Um, and I think we need to think about how do we how do we harness some of that visitor economy, some of that leisure economy for the for the longer term? Because it's a different way of thinking about it. We've also got some um, work around the um, the the impact that uh, transport has in terms of um, acting as a barrier to social inclusion and equality. And that, together with the work on decarbonisation, for me, is an area where we've got to to kind of provide some leadership because. We're clear that the way we've planned and used transport in the past isn't sustainable in the long term. And we've got the opportunities in some of our larger cities to do things quite differently. But we mustn't forget our rural communities where actually the opportunities and the choices are not as, as good, but there's still a need to meet their needs for travel. So some of those challenges are going to be quite tricky in terms of uh, unlocking the potential for the future. And we need to think and care about our more rural communities as much as our, our, our metros and our city centres. And finally, the other thing for me, uh, Nathan, is, is freight and logistics. We've talked a lot about economic potential. Well, we mustn't forget that the business community needs the transport infrastructure to, to realise its potential. And going back to one of the reasons we've talked about rail quite a bit today is, uh, and don't let's forget, you know, the railways came into being because they were created to help industry realise its potential in the early Victorian era. And it's still a key part of our business community. And it's also a chance to help decarbonise some of the most challenging parts of our transport system. So freight on our railways is going to be just as important as passengers. And the leadership that we're providing around freight uh, and logistics is really important for the longer term. So I think the visitor economy, social inclusion, rural areas, freight and logistics, the the list is quite um, exciting for me. Uh, And what really um, makes this role so interesting for me is the fact that as a uh, as transport for the north, where we've got the knowledge and the experience to provide some really thought leadership issues on this, to challenge received wisdoms, and to map out for the future. Um, 
I've often talked in, in the past, Nathan, about how transport's at the heart of all of our, our, our lives. It's about what connects people and places with services and opportunities. And for me, what we do on transport isn't just shaping the future, it's shaping today and tomorrow and the next day after that. So it's absolutely essential that we build upon what we've got with Transport for the North. We provide that leadership, we have that voice, and we secure the future for the North's residents and businesses. Martin, thank you very much for joining us today on uh, Pod's Own Country. Really appreciate your time and uh, best of luck with the role. And I'm sure we'll be speaking to you again soon about some of the other projects you're working on. Thank you very much, Nathan. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Pod Zone Country. If you have any topics you think we should be covering or any stories you think that we should be digging into, please get in touch with me over email on caitlin.doherty at jpress.co.uk. I'll speak to you next week.